Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 23. I'm Rick. It's a little intro I told you already. I'm author of the just released in October of last year, the Jesus Center Daily, which, by the way, as I'm recording this right now, uh, Amazon has that that little gem on sale for like less than $4 right now. So, wow. If I were you, I would go get some for Christmas presents. Um but again, that's that's just on Amazon. It's a daily devotional that um, uh, sort of is planted in the ground of what you hear on this podcast. It's it's very unusual, creative, uh, unexpected ways every day of getting to know the heart of Jesus and what it's like to follow him. So it's called the Jesus Center Daily. It's available everywhere, but Amazon right now has it on super sale. So Head on over there if you want to pick up some copies for Christmas presents, which, as it turns out, we're headed toward the end of summer. Can you believe it? There's bus buses in our neighborhood and kids going back to school. And in a week, I take my youngest daughter, Emma, to college. Yes, the dreaded empty nest, except my older daughter, Lucy, is going to be at home for a bit as she prepares to go to medical school. But oh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, it is about to happen in our household because our youngest is going all the way to California to go to school. So we'll be taking her there in a week and then returning to a sea of tears. So uh, that means that the fall is upon us. And if the fall is upon us, then the holidays can't be far behind. I can't believe I'm saying that. But um, when you already see pumpkin spice lattes, Uh, and pumpkin spice coffee in the grocery store, it means that, um, well, the fall is not far away. So speaking of the fall, and fall is a change of seasons. Uh, The seasons are planted in our our midst as this beautiful, creative uh, background reminder of what the kingdom of God is really like. Uh, The kingdom of God runs on seasons. Things grow, things die. Um, and, and then grow again. So uh, our life is seasonal and our, the production of fruit in our lives is seasonal. And that's what we've been doing in this current series called the harvest. This is the sixth episode in that series. And it's essentially, uh, embracing the, the creative reality that fruit comes from a tree and each tree produces a certain kind of fruit, but that one of Jesus's favorite metaphors um, is the the branch attached to the vine uh, or the branch in a tree, for instance. So we are like this branch that is cut off from its source of life. That's what it means to be a broken human being cut off by sin. And when we attach to him in a, in a deeper grafted like way where the, where the attachment is permanent, we get, the life of the vine or the tree flowing up through our dead branch, and it produces fruit naturally. And when we do, we produce fruit after its own kind, the, the same fruit that the, the vine or tree were attached to 
we produce that same kind of fruit. But Jesus is no ordinary fruit tree. Out of one tree produces many, many, many varieties of fruit, and they're all natural. And that's what happens in our life too. Uh, rather than striving and working harder to be better, we attach ourselves to Jesus and the fruit happens over time. So we're exploring each variety of fruit and we're tracking it back to its original source in the tree, who is Jesus. And last episode, if you remember, we explored um, the harvest fruit of story and metaphor as a core expression of Jesus' heart. Sort of a, it's also a fundamental way that we understand our own identity. We are narrative creatures whose God is a storyteller. And we discover who we are through story, the, the way we embrace our stories and the way we're harmed by some of the stories that, that we follow and believe in our life. We rediscovered the way really story and metaphor infuses every part of our life and including all of creation. Uh, we, we rediscovered again, re-embraced again what the truth that Paul talks about in Romans 1, that the creation that we are surrounded by and immersed in is embedded with the personality and value system and heart of God himself. He's planted himself in creation as a reminder to us of what he's like and what the kingdom of God is like. So creation itself is a story that's mirroring back to us who God is and reflecting back to us what life in the kingdom of God is like, and ultimately who we are. So that means that life is really, uh, really all about waking up to the stories and metaphors that are shaping our self narrative, and therefore our identity. And because we know that Jesus is a storyteller, uh, the question then is, well, what kind of a story is he telling? Um, so he's trying to tell a story of beauty in our life. The story he's telling about us in our life, the story that he's trying to weave into our self-narrative is a story of romance, a story of wooing, of being wooed by him in such a way that we commit ourselves to him in a permanent attachment. And out of that permanent attachment comes fruit. But don't forget that the parable that we took a look at in the last episode, the parable of wheat and the weeds, um, reminds us that as the fruit or the wheat uh, is growing up in our field, in the soul of our field, an enemy is also snuck in and planted little seeds of weeds in there. And in the parable, the, the farmer, the master of the field, says, let those weeds grow up amongst the wheat. Don't pull them up yet because you'll ruin the wheat if you do. In some way, the wheat needs those weeds to be growing up amongst it so that it can uh, fully gain the, the strength and um, nutrition that the wheat has to give. And then when it comes time to harvest, the, the wheat crop is a strong um, bumper crop harvest, and then the weeds are taken care of at that time. Let's just remember this snippet from last week that I read from uh, the book that I have coming out in early September called The, Su the Suicide Solution. Um, I'll put a link to that on our pain ridiculous attention to Jesus.com episode page. Again, this is episode this is season six, episode 23. So I'll put a link to the book. You can check it out or even pre-order if you want to. It's called The Suicide Solution. I co-wrote it with Dr. Daniel Amina, and it's an exploration of depression and suicidality through the lens of 
uh, what we know is the best emerging science and research about how to prevent that slide overlaid with an exploration of how Jesus interacted with people to reclaim their narrative in their life, to, to turn destructive narratives into redemptive narratives. So it's a kind of a mix of these influences. And uh, last week, I read to you a little excerpt from the book. I'm going to read it again just as a reminder. Dan McAdams, a professor of psychology at Northwestern University, says we all have a narrative identity. It's our own personal mythology, complete with plot twists, thematic threads, and heroes and villains. McAdams says we tell ourselves two basic self-narratives. The first is redemptive stories, and the second is contamination stories. The first kind of story is transplanted from the kingdom of God, where redemption is not only the mission of the Messiah, but also the heartbeat of life. The second kind of story is exported and propagated by the kingdom of darkness, where killing and stealing and destroying is the mission, referencing John 10, 10 there. So here what, we're, what Dan McAdams, this professor from Northwestern, is reminding us of is we have these two kinds of stories planted in us, contamination stories and redemptive stories. And the redemptive story is what Jesus is trying to tell in our life. And he's trying to co-write that story with us. He's not just taking over our story and rewriting it. He's, he's, he's invited us to write with him in our, in our life story. The contamination stories are planted there, not by him, but by an enemy who sneaks in at night. And uh, those contamination stories have to be contended with in our own narrative because those stories, those weeds are impacting our life. And the, and the hard truth is that Jesus allows uh, some of those contamination stories to keep growing in our life right alongside the good things he's trying to grow because there's something that the good growth needs in the contamination stories. Uh, somehow he uses the energy and leverage of those contamination stories to bring about great strength and beauty in us. So um, as part of what we did last time, of course, we took this deep dive into the parable of the wheat and weeds, and we discovered really why that farmer would allow those weeds, those contamination stories to grow up right alongside the wheat, those redemptive stories in our soul. We tackled two questions, if you remember, why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in our story? And what is the harvest he's referencing? So in a macro way, we're, we're taking a look at how Jesus frames himself as a farmer tending to his fields, and each of us is a field. So what does it look like to have weeds grow up in our soul? And how is Jesus growing redemption in us and patiently removing the weeds? Really, the, the, the uh, focus of this episode is what is Jesus doing to plant redemptive stories in our narrative? How is he redeeming our story? So um, I thought it'd be interesting for us to uh, look at a story that uh, is a story of wheat, of wheat and weeds. It's wheat growing up when there's also weeds growing up. Because it's, it's a challenge to map the influence of the weeds and the growth of the wheat. Um, and, but we can do that best when we, when we pay attention to it in stories. You can see this story in films, in, in novels, in all aspects of life, really. Wherever there is a story, you'll see this narrative of the weeds growing up along the wheat, along with the wheat. And if it's a redemptive story, then the weeds somehow get dealt with along the way 
um, as they help to produce the growth of the wheat along the way. And there, then there's a harvest time in the story. Um, and you can see in retrospect the role the weeds played in the harvest of the wheat. So I thought we could take a look at a, a story that is a story of wheat and weeds from a book called Make a Difference. Um, I, I, somebody sent this story to me not too long ago, and I thought it encapsulates what we're trying to get at. So, so I'd like you to think about as I read this story, where are the weeds in this story? And what relationship do they have to the wheat that's growing up? And what's the harvest of that wheat? And then we're going to explore the, the gap that, that in this story that represents between uh, when, when the weeds are allowed to grow alongside the wheat, what happens? What happens to the wheat? What happens to the weeds in the gap of this story? So here we go. This is a story, again, from uh, Make a Difference. Jerry Galt never expected to spend a significant part of his time in retirement with migrant farm workers and their families. He describes himself as, quote, an American who believes in border protection, fiscal conservatism, liberal politics, and a compassionate heart. After having served six years in the military and 34 years working for a national corporation, he retired and now works as a commercial real estate broker. He's always been a person of faith, loyal to his church, and living what he believed was a responsible Christian life. One day, a friend asked him to help transfer ownership of a very small frame house from a landlord to a farm worker family. It was the first time Jerry had ever seen the way farm workers live, particularly if they're undocumented. As he got to know the family, he began to struggle to reconcile our current immigration issues with this family's needs and his personal value system. Here's the way Jerry describes his conversation with God. Me, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Please help me understand your plan for me and how I might reconcile this immigration issue. God, well, there's something I want you to do, but first we need to correct a couple of your perceptions. Over the next year and a half, a series of seemingly unrelated events began to happen in his life. The adult education director at his church asked him to facilitate a small group, a small discipleship group. As they made their way through this study, Jerry found himself moving into a deeper understanding of what it might mean for him to love God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as he loved himself. The Holy Spirit began to expand Jerry's understanding of who his neighbor might be. Jerry said, my neighbor was no longer limited by a person's country of origin or legal status, documented or undocumented, or station in life. This expansion of thought added a new dimension and desire to my life that I needed to fulfill. As he began to search for new ways to love God and serve his neighbor, God began sending people into his life who either needed love or were willing to offer love, he says. He began to sense that he was being called to connect to these two groups of people. As he began searching for how he might do that, he experienced more of what he calls, quote, seemingly unrelated events that made no sense until later. To under, understand immigration issues, he took an online course on immigration and U.S. citizenship. That was followed by an online course in Latin American culture. As Jerry continued his discipleship journey, the Holy Spirit began probing more deeply into his life. Did Jesus say, let the little children come unto me so that I can see if they're prop properly documented? Or did he say, let the children come to me? These are questions that Jerry was asking himself. 
Did Jesus say, I died on the cross to save only U.S. citizens from the consequences of their sins? Or did he say, I died on the cross to save all from the consequences of their sins? More questions Jerry's asking himself. Which takes first priority in your life? Are you an American first or are you a Christian first? At a civic luncheon, Jerry met a person who was already doing God's work in the migrant community. As they talked, Jerry became energized by the opportunities to serve the academically talented migrant farm worker students and their families. Two high school graduates had been awarded scholarships, but their undocumented parents were unable to provide for other college expenses like transportation and clothing and food and insurance. As Jerry began to visit the families in the migrant camps, he met other talented students and began to see what God was calling him to do. Along the way, God was sending him people from his church who were willing to share their love with these students and their families. Together, they began responding to the opportunities before them by helping the academically gifted students find their way to higher education. At the time of this writing, they've supported 26 students who have attended 10 different colleges and universities. When winter came, he learned that the children of the farm workers had no warm clothing. So this team worked with a local department store to supply winter clothing at a reduced cost. As word of the need spread, the community began to donate large quantities of blankets and warm clothing. He arranged for the Agape Food Bank to provide healthy food for 20 cents a pound. And when a new baby was on the way, he arranged for a family to deliver the crib and baby supplies. When one student needed a cochlear implant, he found doctors and donors to make it happen. Responding to God's call in his own life, Jerry is also equipping other people who have limited amounts of flexible time to be involved in ministry. One businessman who has had more than enough work to keep him busy gets up early every Wednesday morning to go to the Akapi food bank where he picks up food that he and other volunteers deliver to these migrant families. When asked why he does it, he said, it comes from a place of passion and purpose. I work at my job to pay the bills, but this is where my heart is. Jerry laughs out loud when he says that he's having the time of his life connecting people who need love with people who offer love. He says, quote, it's not about us. It's not even about the migrant students and their families. It's about God's love for us and our need to respond to his love for us. To visit the workers' homes with him is to experience the deep joy that only comes from those, to those who follow their passion and find their place to serve. Jerry has found the place where his great gladness and the world's great need meet. So there you have Jerry's story. Um, I think it's a, in some ways, it's, a, it's an everyday story. And in other ways, it's an extraordinary, miraculous kingdom of God story. So when we think about this story, and even based on your own experience with your own field or your own soul, what do you think must have happened inside Jerry in the months and years represented in this snapshot? Well, let's consider some possibilities. First, in a way, uh, Jerry had an established narrative in his life, fed, fed into his life from his various life experiences, like we all do. And out of that, those various threads of narrative in his life, he'd come to some conclusions about what is true and good. And late in life, um, he was upended by challenges to some of that narrative. When he got to be in relationship and actually involved in the lives of people who um, 
in his existing narrative were undeserving people. Um, in fact, they were not only undeserving, they deserved some kind of punishment for what they had done. That was his narrative. In, into that narrative comes personal connection and relationship that starts to upend his narrative and put him into tension. Um, if you remember in the story, Jerry is wrestling inside over what he's now experiencing in relationship with some undocumented immigrants and his uh, existing narrative. And so he doesn't know, it, it, it's, it's now been upended. The, 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 the solid ground under his feet is no longer solid. There's a kind of an earthquake happening. And in the earthquake, uh, Jerry says this, if you remember, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, but please help me to understand your plan for me and how I might reconcile this immigration issue. He's really saying, I don't know how to reconcile what I'm experiencing right now with my narrative. Or another way of saying it is in, in his context, what's been revealed is that there's some weeds that have grown up amongst his wheat. And now they've been exposed. And now he doesn't know what to do with the weeds growing within his wheat field. And God says back to him, well, there's something I wanted you to do, but first we need to correct a couple of your perceptions. It's essentially God saying as the farmer, um, I have a harvest coming in your life, Jerry, but first we're going to have to deal with the weeds and we, we can't just pull them up. Can't just yank them out of the ground. Um, this is going to be a journey, Jerry. <laughs> as we deal with the weeds and see how those weeds can contribute to the strength of the wheat that we're later gonna harvest. And then it says over the next 18 months, lots of what appear to be unrelated events begin to happen in his life. It, it's almost, uh, it's only music when you look back in retrospect. In the moment, Jerry's experience of these things is that they're all unrelated, but a year and a half later, when he looks back, he sees there's a kind of a musical pattern to these things intruding into his life. Have you ever felt that yourself, that you see in retrospect the music of your life and how these seemingly unrelated happenstance, accidental things, someone appears to be taking those random notes and rearranging them into music in your life as you look back on it? Well, uh, in this case, the, the wheat, uh, the wheat, the music that the farmer is, is really trying to play in Jerry's life to use a, a to switch metaphors on you, the music, the, the, uh, the great musician is trying to play in Jerry's life. He needs the, the discordant keys, the discordant notes of the weeds to help develop the, the melody that he's developing. And later on, when the melody is fully developed, the, the, those notes will be overshadowed by the melody that he's, that he's building in Jerry's life. And so um, what do we see? And what else do we see in this story that speaks to what's happening in between point A and point B in Jerry's life? Well, his, his defenses are breached. That, that, and this is a common thing in, in stories like this, of stories of wheat and, weeds and wheat, that when the weeds are surfaced and begin to be dealt with, the defenses of the person are breached. And in this case, it's Jerry's experience with an actual 
undocumented migrant family that starts to breach his defenses. Um, we talk pretty big, as long as we're pretty sure about our own self-narrative, until something significant challenges that self-narrative, and then we're in tension and, and disequilibrium and disorientation, just like Jerry is. Um, and it's, there's something about the authenticity of the experience that upends us that makes it hard to get around. It's like somebody's dropped a wall down in front of us. We're happily going along the, our way with our comfortable self-narrative, and suddenly somebody drops a wall down. And we can't get around it and we can't get over it. Now we have to deal with it. So, um, so the, as, as we get deeper into the experience of the wall, what happens with Jerry is he develops a passion. He starts to develop a, a burgeoning passion for the people that he meets. His heart is overcome by their humanness. And he starts to ask himself, a series of questions that are going to lead to his whole life being upended, really, and a new passion and purpose to emerge in his life. Uh, you can see the wheat growing here by leaps and bounds in the presence of those weeds. It's the weeds that he's having to deal with um, and doesn't know how to deal with that actually fuel the passion of the growth of the wheat in his life. So he starts asking himself some questions like, uh, did Jesus say to let the little children come unto me so that I can see if they're properly documented? Representing hit the, the perspective and the narrative in life that he'd embraced before as, as uh, unassailable. Like this, this, is, uh, this is what I believe. And yet now he's asking himself, did Jesus really say let the children come to me so I can see if they're properly documented. He's, he's, un, he's, he's upending his own story when he asks these questions. Or did he say, Jerry says, let the children come to me. Or did Jesus say I died on the cross only to save U.S. citizens? Or did he say I died on the cross to save everyone? And then the last, this, this question must have very much upended his life trajectory, given his past and the threads flowing into that trajectory. Which takes first priority in your life? Are you an American first or are you a Christian first? Now the upending is complete in his life. Now there's an opening to, to the harvest of the wheat in his life. And then you can see all the fruit that came out of it. The number, the number of students helped uh, the people with, with food when they didn't have food before and clothing when they didn't have. Does that start to ring a bell? When Jesus talks about what, what is the kingdom of God, well, it's, it's, it's helping and serving the poor and the needy with these very same basics in life. These fruits start to show up in Jerry's life and in, in such an extraordinary way, like it, it had never happened before. And it all came because his narrative had been upended by a new narrative. Um, the music of his life that seemed like it would go on forever is suddenly uh, replaced by a new melody with new notes. So um, this is a story uh, in so many ways of exactly how Jesus uh, enters into our story, upends it, and brings about a harvest of wheat while still keeping, uh, keeping those weeds growing up alongside because he has a useful purpose for them. So how does he work to redeem our story, you can see the redemption 
planted in Jerry's story. Um, it seems crazy and accidental and unexpected. And yet, as we've said, when you look back on it, there's a certain kind of thread that you can see looking back that seems extraordinary. How could it be? But Jesus has woven himself into the story in such a way, in such an artistic way, that he's brought about a redemptive narrative. He's redeemed our story. He's, he's definitely trying to in, influence the narrative of our life. And he, and he will use our contamination stories as a kind of fertilizer for our overshadowing story of redemption. So let's take a look at um, at least one story. We'll see what the time looks like here. We're going to look at least one story where uh, what we're going to do is ask ourselves, in what ways is Jesus targeting the weeds in these people? And in what ways is he influencing or inviting a narrative redemption in these people? So another way of saying that is, well, what is the person's narrative before their encounter with Jesus? And how is Jesus trying to influence that narrative? So let's look at the first story here. I call this the self-justifying man. This is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So if you have a Jesus-centered Bible handy, that's a Bible I was general editor for and led the team that created that about six years ago. It's a, it's a truth in advertising. It's a Bible that has lots of uh, extra special features um, that all point to Jesus, no matter where you're reading in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter what. There's eight or 10 special features, many of them in no other Bible in the world that helps you to refocus your attention on Jesus, no matter where you're reading. So if you have one of those Jesus Center Bibles nearby and you want to crack it open, you're not driving, uh, open up to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, the self-justifying man. Um, think about the question I asked you here as we read. What was the person's narrative like before this encounter with Jesus? And how is Jesus trying to impact that narrative? So here we go, Luke 10, 25 through 37. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How, how do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, well, um, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now we're thinking here in this story about our, our, our questions. In what way is Jesus targeting the weeds in this, in this guy? And in what way is he influencing or inviting a narrative redemption in this guy? So 
if you think about this story, the man asks an apparently innocent question at the start. Um, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus plays with him a little bit. Um, he asks him, well, what do you think? And the guy answers the quote unquote right answer. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is content to leave it there, right? Do, do this and you'll live, he says. But that doesn't satisfy the man. He wants uh, sort of Jesus's uh, stamp of approval on what he's done in his life. So he makes the uh, terrible error of asking Jesus another question. And that question reveals the man's weed. That question reveals that the weed in his heart is self-justification. He feels pretty proud about how he has divided up his life. And he feels pretty good that he is following this command to love your neighbors yourself. Feels like he's got it dialed in. And Jesus notices the weed when it shows itself. And so he replies, not with uh, some kind of fix it advice. Instead, he, he replies with a story. And the story itself is just completely upending. The two people that should have had compassion on this person don't um, because the, uh, they don't want to get involved. And the one person who shouldn't get involved who's a despised, the word is despised about this man, he comes along and acts in an extraordinarily compassionate way, going the extra mile over and over again to help this stranger he's never met before. And at the end of the story, of course, Jesus asked the man, um, who, now, which of the three was a neighbor? And the man replies, the one who showed him mercy. So now the man is upended. Now the man's defenses are under assault. Now the feet under the man's ground feels like an earthquake. I mean, the, the foundation under the man's feet feels like an earthquake. He, he doesn't have his solid footing anymore. He felt like his self-justification was ironclad. And now that's a huge question after having to embrace the truth about this story. Now he has to think about his own story in a way he never has before. Now there's an open door um, to Jesus that would never have been there before because Jesus tells him now go and do the same. Well, the man has to consider, how am I going to do the same now? When I thought I had everything dialed in, I don't. And all of a sudden his whole, the whole structure for the way he sees his own narrative starts to disintegrate. The foundation is, is exploded underneath it. And his, the story of his life starts to fall down. And in that falling down, Jesus is there wanting to help rebuild something new. Um, it's the strength of the weed and how deep it went that when it's, when, when, uh, it's pointed out and surfaced and spotlighted um, and embraced as a weed for the first time, that only then does the, the wheat really take off. Uh, the wheat now has a chance to really grow. Because that's ultimately what Jesus is saying to this man. He wants the man to grow. He doesn't want him to stay in this self-satisfied, self-justified place. He wants the man to grow in humility and um, that his righteousness would, be, would come through his attachment to the vine, not through his own efforts. And now is the man's opportunity for life 
to happen for in the first place. Um, Let's, let's look at a second story. I call this the platform building leaders. This is from Luke chapter 14, 1 through 14. Uh, so flip over there if you're able to and not driving. You can flip over to Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. I call this the platform building leaders. Let's do the same thing with this story. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of the leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, He gave him this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who's more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back and that'll be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Again, we're thinking about this story through the lens of these um, guiding questions. In what way is Jesus targeting the weeds in these people? And in what ways... Is he influencing and inviting a narrative of redemption in them? Or another way of putting it is, what was their narrative before their encounter with Jesus? And how is Jesus trying to influence that narrative? So this is an interesting stretch um, that, that he's eating dinner in the home of a, le- a Pharisee leader. And he's being watched closely by everyone. What is this guy going to do? And it's on the Sabbath. And there's a man there with a medical condition. And Jesus wants to heal him. And he recognizes that in in the religious law, he's not supposed to be healing people on the Sabbath because that's considered work. So Jesus asked them, is it okay for me to heal someone on the Sabbath? And they won't won't answer. They won't say yes or no. So Jesus says, okay, well, if you're not going to answer, I'm just going to heal this guy. And he does. He heals him and he sends the man away. And then he asks them an upending question. It's funny how, how often Jesus asks upending questions to kind of surface the weed. Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? That's what he's asking. All of you do is what he's implying. Because if your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? He's saying, yeah, you, you have a compartmentalized way of seeing what's true. And you're holding to some religious laws in a self-satisfied way, but you're not really serving love in the way that you have constructed this, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath is his upending question that surfaces the weed. And then he turns and he notices a whole field full of weeds (laughs) at this dinner, because he notices that everyone at the dinner is trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table. There's the weed exposed. And so he tells, uh, tells them, Hey, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit up there. What if, what if this happens in this scenario? And, 
and uh, you'll get embarrassed because you're put down at the end of the table. And instead, he says, you know, take the seat of most dishonor, and then perhaps your host will will upgrade you. Um, so after he talks about this scenario, then he turns to his host and he basically says, don't invite the people that are going to pay you back for your generosity. Invite the people that could never pay you back because the reward you'll experience, the wheat, the growth of your wheat will be unbelievable. The fruit of that is a bumper crop of wheat that gets harvested. And that wheat can nourish everyone around you. So again, here he's targeting the weeds that he sees growing up along the wheat. And he's asking some upending questions where he's, uh, what he's doing is, again, shaking the foundations underneath their feet so that they feel disoriented and, um, and unsure. And now what they thought was sure is no longer sure. And this is exactly the impact Jesus wants to have here. He, uh, what, what we think is sure is no longer sure because what Jesus is doing in our life. And just like Jerry's story, once that upending happens and our heart begins to get engaged with a deeper truth, then anything can happen. Our whole narrative full of weeds can suddenly be accessed by Jesus. And he starts to tell a new narrative in our life. He starts to plant a redemptive story in our life. Don't invite the people that can pay you back. Reach out to the people who can't. Um, that's the kingdom of God. That's what the, the fruit of the harvest looks like when you start doing that. Um, but the only way to get there from where they are is to first surface and acknowledge the weeds and then allow the disorientation of that tension between the weeds and the wheat have its effect. And over the course of time, the wheat grows as, as these redemptive storylines in our life start to take hold. And pretty soon they overshadow the weeds. And after a while, those weeds can just be plucked away and the wheat is, is harvested and put into barns so that others can be nourished from the fruit of our life. Um, the weeds are necessary for a while, but eventually they got to go. And in this process, uh, Jesus is patient. He's the patient farmer who lets those things grow up for a while until they got to go. Until that redemptive storyline that he's planting this becomes our, just our storyline. This becomes our new narrative. Redemption then is the narrative of our life. Well, what can we do here at the close? Um, what do we have to offer Jesus? I think just like the widow who offered her penny into the temple pot and only Jesus noticed her because he, what he noticed was the kingdom of God happening there. That even though she, all she had was a penny, she gave everything she had. Um, Jesus noticed it because she, this woman was a living metaphor for the kingdom of God, that giving all that you have. So what do we have to give to Jesus in this scenario? Well, maybe all we have to give is our weeds. So I want you to imagine just holding your, just put your hands out in front of you right now, if you're able, if you're not driving, just put your hands, cup them together in front of you. Just imagine yourself holding a weed in your hands. And as you do, just lift that weed up to Jesus. Like the widow offered her penny, lift your weed up, whatever it is. The thing that you wish wasn't there, the thing that you, oh, if only, if only, 
or in, to use Paul's words, that thorn in the side, I don't need it. Can you take it away? Instead of begging Jesus just to take away the weed, maybe just hold it up to him and offer it to him. It's what we have, Jesus. I offer it to you and I acknowledge what it is. Now would you plant a story of redemption in my life so that over time, when it comes the right time, this weed can be overshadowed and plucked away and the wheat of the harvest of my life can be shared with others to nourish them. There you go. All right. As I said, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, season six, episode 23, for links to what we've talked about today. Again, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again in the next episode.